Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation Future Radio. Hey, I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Wednesday, April 6th, 2022, and we are live. Welcome to the African History Network show. We're broadcasting on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. All right. Turn on... Be sure to follow us here on our social media platforms and turn on live notifications so you know when we go live. All right. So I I posted uh, some articles, a couple of articles dealing with the decision from uh, the prosecutors in uh, Minnesota not to uh, charge the officer who shot and killed Amir Locke. Okay, Um, we know Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman and uh, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison held a joint press conference today to announce that no charges would be filed in the uh, killing of Amir Locke, all right? And we know this took place uh, back in uh, February 2nd, uh, 2022. Amir Locke, 22-year-old African-American man, he was shot and killed as members of the Minneapolis Police SWAT uh, team ex- executed a warrant related to a homicide investigation in neighboring St. Paul. And we know uh, Amir Locke was legally armed and he also had a, a license to carry, according to his uh, according to his mother. And uh, he was uh, shot and killed. Uh, the, 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 the police entered uh, based upon a no-knock warrant. All right. So uh, I'm going to share some of the press conference today then also on roland martin unfiltered roland talked to two attorneys a scott bolden and monique presley and they gave the legal perspective of this okay uh because based upon existing minnesota law uh there was unfortunately unfortunately nothing to charge the officer with and in the press conference they uh Keith Ellison said that uh, Congress needs to uh, pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act now, okay, because we know in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, um, one of the things it would do is it would uh, lower the standard at the federal level to charge uh, officers, the criminally prosecute officers, it would lower the standard from willful intent down to negligence, which would make it easier to federally criminally prosecute uh, police officers, all right? So we're going to talk about that uh, on today's show. And uh, there's a good article from NBC News uh, uh, on this. And then also there's one from uh, the Washington Post, okay? So we'll talk about that uh, on today's show. And then yesterday when we talked about Jessica Tanji Brown-Jackson and her nomination uh, advancing. So go back and watch the uh, Tuesday, April 5th show because we have a rebroadcasting. I finished editing it today and we have a rebroadcasting on our social media platform. So go watch that one. Um, one that th- th- there was a uh, interview that uh, Joanne Reed did with Vice President Kamala Harris uh, recently and, and, and they uh, she asked her about just the Tanji Brown Jackson and the way Republicans treated her, okay? And I did not get a chance to get to that clip yesterday because we were so busy. 
So we'll talk about that on today's show. All right. And I'm not broadcasting on 9, 10 a.m. Uh, today. So we're not we probably won't stop uh, for commercial breaks either. All right. Uh, I want to cue this uh, first clip up here and I want to look at this article from. Um, look at this article here from uh, NBC News. OK, so let's pull this one up here from uh, NBC News. Uh, police won't be charged in death of Amir Locke. Black man shot. Um, police won't be charged in death of Amir Locke. Black man shot in uh, no knock raid. Okay. Police won't be charged in death of Amir Locke. Black man shot in no knock raid. Uh, there, so uh, in the joint press conference today, uh, Hennepin County Attorney Michael Freeman and Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison said there's insufficient admissible, admissible evidence to file criminal charges, insufficient admissible evidence to file criminal charges. Uh, so no charges will be filed in the death of a Mirlock, 22-year-old African-American man who was shot by a uh, SWAT team, uh, Minnesota police uh, SWAT team, um, during a raid with a no-knock warrant in Minneapolis in February, uh, officials announced on when, and the killing took place, uh, I think that was February 2nd, okay? Uh, yeah, February 2nd, 2022. Hennepin County Attorney Michael Freeman and Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison said in a statement that a thorough review, uh, after a thorough review, there's insufficient admissible evidence to file criminal charges in the case. Insufficient admissible evidence to file criminal charges in the case. Burden of proof is on the prosecution, okay? The burden of proof is not on uh, the defense, the burden of proof is on the prosecution. Okay. So, uh, let's look at this. Now, uh, Amir Locke's mother, Karen Wells said, uh, Wednesday afternoon after the decision was announced, she said, I'm not disappointed. I am disgusted with the city of Minneapolis. Uh, the statement from, uh, Mike Freeman and, uh, attorney general Keith Ellison, state attorney general Keith Ellison said, it said the state of Minnesota would be unable to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt elements of Minnesota's use of deadly force statute, elements of Minnesota's use of deadly force statute that would have authorized use of force by, uh, by Officer Mark Hanneman, the officer who shot Amir Locke, okay? They also said the state would be unable to prove beyond a reasonable doubt a criminal charge against any other officer involved in the decision-making that led to the death of Amir Locke. They also said the state of Minnesota would be unable to prove based upon the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt a criminal charge against any other officer involved in the decision-making that led to the death of Amir Locke. Now, Amir Locke was killed uh, on February 2nd, 2022, after officers stormed into 
uh, the apartment he was in and found him on the couch covered in a blanket. Minneapolis police said Hanneman, uh, Hanneman opened fire after he saw the barrel of a gun come into view from under the blanket. All right. Uh, and I, I showed that picture before uh, of the uh, Amir under the blanket. And you could see that his finger was on the barrel of the gun, not the trigger of the gun. Okay. But unfortunately, based upon uh, Minnesota state law and other state laws, is it, it goes to the uh, re, it goes to the judgment of the officer and what a reasonable officer uh, would do or perceive. Okay, so here is uh, it shows uh, Amir has his finger on the barrel of the gun, not the trigger of the gun, in this uh, still photo right here. Okay, now I want to go to. Uh, I want to go to clip number one. This is from uh, NBC News Now, and this deals with, uh, let me see here, NBC News Now, this deals with um, what happened today. So let me go to this. Hold on. Okay, here it is right here. Let's go to this clip here. Can we get this? And I'm running the boards tonight, so just bear with me here. Okay, we'll get past that ad. Now, Amir Locke was shot three times. Uh, also, let's go back to this article from NBC News. Amir Locke was shot three times. Now, um, Hennepin County uh, Attorney Mike Freeman and Minnesota uh, State's Attorney General Keith Ellison said that under Minnesota law, peace officers are authorized to use deadly force in the line of duty to protect other officers or other people from death or great bodily harm under Minnesota state law. Now, the the way the law is, the law needs to be changed. Okay. Now, and also, um, um, Mayor Frey, Mayor Frey um, outlawed the no-knock warrants permanently today. But Minnesota state law needs to change. But when they file charges, they don't file charges based upon what they want the law to be or wish the law was. It's based upon what the law is now. So based uh, uh, under current Minnesota state law, uh, peace officers are uh, uh, police officers are authorized to use deadly force in the line of duty to protect other officers or other people from death or great bodily harm. All right, now let's go to this clip here from uh, NBC News. Now you're going to hear Shaquille Brewster give an update on what happened today. We're following breaking news out of Minneapolis, where we've just learned that no charges will be filed against police in the death of Amir Locke, a black man who was killed during a no-knock warrant. NBC News correspondent Shaquille Brewster has been following the story for us. Shaq, bring us up to speed for people who are just tuning into this case. I mean, who was Amir Locke and how was he killed? 
Well, Amir Locke was 22 years old, and he was killed on February 2nd of this year as Minneapolis police executed a no-knock search warrant on an apartment in which he was staying. Now, we got new details of the actual investigation and what happened. You're seeing the body camera there. That was the morning of February 2nd as Minneapolis police were assisting the St. Paul Police Department in executing a search warrant involving a homicide investigation. Now, Amir Locke, he was not named in that warrant. He was not a suspect in this case, but he was staying on the couch. He was sleeping on the couch of someone potentially connected to that investigation. And you see in that video, he was under the couch and as police, or he was under a blanket on the couch and as police enter the apartment, he uh, came up from that blanket and police say a barrel of the gun was pointed in the direction of an officer. So that is the case that uh, you saw back in February. It led to significant protests. It led to a ban, immediate ban on or moratorium on no-knock warrants in the city of Minneapolis. And today we have that information and that news from the Hennepin County attorney and then the attorney general for the state of Minneapolis saying that no charges will be filed against the officers involved in that raid. And can you, can you stay on that point just for a minute here? I mean, why has the Minnesota Attorney General decided uh, to file criminal charges against the officers, declined to file criminal charges against the officers? Yeah, and I'll read a bit from that statement, but before I do, one thing that we heard from both of those uh, leaders, the leader of the state investigative body and the county investigative body, they said that Amir Locke was a victim here. They made that very clear, and they underscored again that he was not a suspect in this case. They said, quote, he should be alive today and his death is a tragedy. But later on, and you see there was a press conference that they just wrapped up in the past couple of minutes. Later on, they detailed that after a thorough review of all available evidence, however, there is insufficient admissible evidence to file criminal charges in this case. They essentially explained that their thorough review showed that the gun was at one point pointed in the direction of an officer. Remember, this was a raid that happened at about 645 in the morning. It appeared as if Amir Locke was sleeping and it was a no-knock raid. But it's not their job, they say, to evaluate the uh, intentions of the victim in this case. Instead, they have to approach it from the position of a reasonable officer. And they said in that instance, a reasonable officer had a right to fear for his life. Okay, so that's from uh, NBC News uh, Now. And that's Shaquille Brewster giving an update on what happened uh, today. Now, I want to go to this uh, piece here from uh, CBS uh, Minnesota, the uh, CBS Channel 4, I think it is, Minnesota. And hold on just a second, the screen's freezing up on me. Um, I want to go to this because you're going to hear some of the um, press conference that took place today, okay, with uh, the prosecutors. And they explain why they could not bring charges. All right, just a minute here. This is, hold on, we may get disconnected. All right. Okay, so, so we're back. Okay, the screen was freezing up on me. 
All right. Uh, I want to go to this. Uh, I want to go to the CBS uh, Minnesota. I want to go to this clip here from CBS Minnesota. And this deals with the press conference that took place today. Okay. So let me cue that up just a second here. How's everybody doing? Share this broadcast on you know, social media platforms. Turn on live notifications so you know when we go live. Follow us on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. Uh, and turn on live notifications so you know when we go live. All right, just a second. Where is this? Okay. All right, let me pull up this. Uh, I want to go to this next uh, piece. This is from uh, CBSNews.com, and uh, we're going to hear the local reporting from uh, CBS Minnesota uh, Channel 4, and we're going to hear some of the press conference. All right, if we look at, if we go back to the article from uh, NBC News, let's go back to the uh, article from NBC News here. All right. They said that they said at a news conference after the announcement that Locke's hand was seen holding a firearm. Let me pause this right here. Okay. So uh, they said at a news conference after the announcement that Locke's hand was seen holding a firearm, although his finger was not on, on the trigger and uh, that at one point it was pointed directly at Officer uh, Mark Hanneman. Now that must have been out of the view of. The, now there's also footage from Hanneman's body camera and the other body cameras of the uh, officers, but uh, that the the frame that the footage that was already made available. Uh, the gun being pointed at the officer probably inadvertently pointed at him because the mirror lock was asleep, uh, apparently asleep and under the, under the cover. And he had his gun legally owned gun. He hears somebody, uh, to him, it sounds like somebody's breaking into the apartment. So he, he grabbed his gun. Um, but the gun pointing at an officer, we could not see that in the footage and from the view that, that was already released. Okay. In the statement, they said uh, Officer Mark Hanneman uh, perceived the moments as a threat of death or great bodily harm. Perceived, perceived the moments as a threat of death or great bodily harm. Uh, Locke was not a suspect in the investigation connected to the search warrants. Okay. Um, his death once again rocked Minneapolis nearly two years after the killing of George Floyd. Uh, by then, uh, at the time, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. All right, let's go back to. Uh, I want to go to this clip here from uh, CBS uh, Minnesota. They filed in the Amir Locke shooting case. That's news today from Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison and Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman. Locke was shot and killed East in February as they raided a downtown apartment. Locke was sleeping on the couch at that time when police say he woke up, grabbed a gun and pointed it at them. That's when they say they shot him. Ellison and Freeman say 
there was insufficient insufficient admissible evidence. We want to take you to their press conference my now. Appreciation for the partnership with the Attorney General himself and his staff. We have had very positive professional relationships in the successful prosecution of several police officers recently. That partnership is reflected in the decision we present today. Thank you, Keith, and your team. Yes, sir. The Hennepin County Attorney's Office, the Minnesota Attorney General's Office, and an independent expert, each separately and independently, have arrived at the conclusion that charges cannot be brought in this case. We will talk about that in response to your questions. Keith? I want to thank you as well, uh, Hennepin County Attorney Freeman. I want to thank your office. I'd like to thank the BCA, and I'd like to thank my colleagues. And uh, uh, this is the kind of work that we have to do. Uh, but I want to just note a few things. Amir Locke's life mattered. Uh, at 22 years old, he was only starting out. Uh, he had a job. Uh, he was making uh, ends meet. Uh, he dreamed of being an entrepreneur. He was interested in real estate and branding his own business. He was about to move to Dallas to start a music career as his father had before him here in Minnesota. Amir came from a loving family. His mother, Karen, and his father, Andre, and many other family members and friends who loved him dearly. He had family in the military and in law enforcement, and he admired members of law enforcement. According to news reports, Amir's parents counseled him about how to handle interactions with the police. Keep your hands visible. Don't make any sudden movements. One thing Amir was not, Amir was not a suspect. Our investigation found no evidence that he had any role in the homicide investigation that brought the police to his door at 648 on February 2nd. Amir was a victim. He never should have, he never should have been called a suspect. The role that County Attorney Freeman and I took on was to determine whether the current law permitted us to file criminal charges in Amir's death. And in so doing, we had to evaluate all the evidence to Minnesota's use of force statute, which is rooted on a 33-year-old Supreme Court precedent called Graham versus Connor. As we announced this morning, we have determined that under the precedent and the laws that we have, we cannot file criminal charges. Current law only allows us to evaluate the case from the perspective of a reasonable police officer. And that language is from the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and relevant cases and statutes. We're not allowed to evaluate the case from the perspective of the victim. With all the available evidence, we would not be able to prove in court that Officer Henneman's use of force was not authorized under the law beyond a reasonable doubt. It would be unethical for us to file charges in a case in which we know that we will not be able to prevail because the law does not support the charges. And still, and yet, a loving, promising young man is dead. His death leaves us with a wound in our community but that is small in comparison to the wound that his family is suffering from. Communities have been torn apart by the trauma yet again, and life and the life of a police officer has been changed forever as well. If the law does not allow us to file criminal charges in this case, what can we do as policymakers, prosecutors, society, community? 
to keep a death like Amir's from happening again. First, we need to interrogate whether no-knock warrants are ever really needed. There are inherent risks for everyone involved, including civilians and officers. Cities like St. Paul and even some states have stopped using them, and it hasn't hurt public safety. Yesterday, Mayor Frey issued another no-knock policy, which appears stronger than the previous one. Now this policy needs to be actually enforced and obeyed. Then maybe Minneapolis can get the results, like St. Paul, which hasn't used a no-knock warrant since 2016, with no harm to public safety. Second, Congress must pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I don't mean someday, I mean now. We need to state, we need state and local actions as well, including enacting the rest of the recommendations of the working group uh, to deadly force use of deadly force encounters that Commissioner Harrington and I released more than two years ago with the inspiration and advice from County Attorney Freeman. Third, Minneapolis leaders need to talk about putting an end to in custody deaths this way, but we need to get serious about doing it. The problems involving policing and communities of color in Minneapolis are longstanding and everyone knows it, yet it feels like nothing ever is done about it. Finally, as prosecutors, we need to continue to hold offenders accountable and uphold the law and uphold standards of justice. The fact is, as I've said before, we'll uphold the principle that no one is above the law and no one's beneath it either. With that, I think we're prepared to, unless you, you want to make some more remarks. Amen. Thank you very much. All right. Talking a giant. All right. So that was part of the press conference today. I'm going to pull up the other part. Uh, uh, now this news uh, broadcasted. Uh, the question and answer portion of the uh, press conference today. Okay. So I want to go to that here. I'm going to pull this up. All right. So they're going to take some uh, questions uh, from the press. And one of the questions was, did Amir have a uh, concealed pistol license or something like that? Uh, it's, it's going to be a few questions that you're going to hear. So we'll do that, and then we'll go uh, back to the article from um, NBC News. And then also I want to look quickly here um, at the article from uh, this one from the Washington Post. Okay, then I want you to hear what happened on Roland Martin Unfiltered today um, as well, dealing with uh, this story. So once again, if you're just tuning in, in the case of Amir Locke, shot and killed by a uh, Minneapolis uh, police SWAT, a SWAT team, uh, shot and killed by Officer Hanneman. Um, this was February 2nd, 2022, Officer Mark Hanneman. Uh, no charges uh, will be filed. The uh, Hennepin County uh, Attorney Mike Freeman and Minnesota State's Attorney Keith Ellison said in the press conference today that uh, there's insufficient admissible evidence to file criminal charges in the case, inadmissible, uh, insufficient admissible evidence to file criminal charges in the case. And also this goes to existing Minnesota state law, not what you want the law to be, not what you wish the law is, but under existing Minnesota state law and dealing with police, 
the statement from Freeman and Ellison said the state was unable, one unable to prove beyond a reasonable doubt elements. Let me pull this up. The statement from uh, Hennepin County uh, attorney, Mike Freeman and Minnesota state's attorney general Keith Ellison said that the state would be unable to disprove, to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt, elements of Minnesota's use of use of deadly force statute that would have authorized use of force by Mark Hanneman, the officer who shot Amir Locke. Okay. They said that they also said that the state would be unable to prove beyond a reasonable doubt a criminal charge against any of the officers uh, involved in the decision making that led to the death of Amir Locke. So there's a 44 page investigative report um, released by uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison and Hennepin County uh, Prosecutor Freeman. On Wednesday, it offered new details about the incident, including writ written statements by Hanneman and other officers at the scene that appear to contradict the publicly released body camera footage of the fatal shooting. Uh, so this is in the article from the Washington Post. OK, but if you if you go and if you just look here at. Um, OK, Hanna, uh, Minneapolis police said Hanneman opened fire after he saw the barrel of a gun come into view from under the blanket. All right. Now. Uh, County prosecutor uh, Mike Freeman and. Minnesota State's Attorney General Keith Ellison said that under current Minnesota law. Police officers, peace officers are authorized to use deadly force in the line of duty to protect other officers or other people from death or great bodily harm. They said uh, at the news conference after the announcement that Locke's hand was seen holding a firearm, although his finger was not on, on the trigger. And at that point, it was pointed directly at Mark Hanneman, according to uh according to the press conference and also this um, body camera uh, footage that shows a different angle. Now, whether he, I think uh, he actually, Keith Ellison talks about this in this clip I'm going to play. It doesn't, it, because Amir was waking up, he probably wasn't pointing it at an officer trying to do harm or anything like that. He's trying to assess what's going on. He still has the sheet over his head. Okay, so it's not, uh, it, it didn't appear he was pointing, trying to do bodily harm. But the standard, as you heard in the clip, is based upon what officer perceives. Okay, not, the, the standard is not based upon what Amir was doing, is what the officer perceives. This is why, as I said in the beginning, that Minnesota state law has to change. 
Okay, so let's go. Let's go to this clip now. This is the question and answers uh, session. That Officer Henneman with all the available evidence, we would not be able to prove in court that Officer Henneman's use of force was not authorized under the law beyond a reasonable doubt. It would be unethical for us to file charges in a case in which we know that we will not be able to prevail because the law does not support the charges. And still, and yet, a loving, promising young man is dead. His death leaves us with a wound in our community, but that is small in comparison to the wound that his family is suffering from. Communities have been torn apart by the trauma yet again, and life and the life of a police officer has been changed forever as well. If the law does not allow us to file criminal charges in this case, what can we do as policymakers, prosecutors, society, community, to keep a death like Amir's from happening again? First, we need to interrogate whether no-knock warrants are ever really needed. There are inherent risks for everyone involved, including civilians and officers. Cities like St. Paul and even some states have stopped using them and it hasn't hurt public safety. Yesterday, Mayor Fry issued another no-knock policy, which appears stronger than the previous one. Now this policy needs to be actually enforced and obeyed. Then maybe Minneapolis can get the results, like St. Paul, which hasn't used a no-knock warrant since 2016, with no harm to public safety. Second, Congress must pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I don't mean someday, I mean now. We need to state we need state and local actions as well, including enacting the rest of the recommendations of the working group uh, to deadly force use of deadly force encounters that Commissioner Harrington and I released more than two years ago with the inspiration and advice from County Attorney Freeman. Third, Minneapolis leaders need to talk about putting it into in custody deaths this way, but we need to get serious about doing it. The problems involving policing and communities of color in Minneapolis are longstanding and everyone knows it, yet it feels like nothing ever is done about it. Finally, as prosecutors, we need to continue to hold offenders accountable and uphold the law and uphold standards of justice. The fact is, as I've said before, we'll uphold the principle that no one is above the law and no one's beneath it either. With that, I think we're prepared to, unless you, you want to make some more remarks. Amen. Thank you very much. All right. Um, our first question comes from Omar Jimenez from CNN. Do you plan to speak with the Locke family at all? If so, what is your message to them after what they may see as a disappointing result here? The Attorney General and I spoke with the Locke family at length this morning. They are fine and decent people who are full of grief. And we expressed our personal uh, sympathies and empathies with the family. Um, they, like us, are very frustrated with no-knock warrants. Um, they, like us, believe that if a, if a no-knock warrant hadn't been used, Amir Locke might well be here today. Um, other than that, I think it would be inappropriate to comment other than we had a long conversation and I know they will continue the effort and the work that Keith has talked about, trying to make our society safer. 
and to remedy some of the racial inequities that exist in our uh, in our criminal justice system. All right, our second question is from Lou Ragus at CARE 11. Uh, thank you for providing additional detail in the frequently asked questions. My question for Mr. Freeman and Mr. Ellison after reading these reports, would you agree that officers have pretty wide ranging authority to kill during these kinds of warrants to an extent that a large segment of the population is uncomfortable with? Well, um, what, what we would say is that the, air, that the area of no-knock warrants needs reform. I'm glad that the city of Minneapolis mayor issued a, a revised uh, policy that is stricter than the last one. Um, but I would agree that there's very broad discretionary latitude. Uh, I will say that it, it calls for reform, and I think it's appropriate for a community to engage to have a policy that's going to preserve life for everyone involved. I, I will add this, no-knock warrants aren't particularly safe for officers either. Uh, they have attendant risks on both sides, civilians and officers. So it's appropriate to investigate and to come up with policy that works. Our next question is from Esme Murphy, Esme Murphy from WCCO. Can you address who the independent expert is and what access did he have to investigative files and other resources? Uh, and how often have you done something like this, hired an independent analyst? Our independent expert was retired Captain Jack Ryan, uh, a police expert in deadly force. He had access to all of the evidence we did, including the body-worn cameras, the statements by the police officers, the search warrant. Um, he did a thorough, complete, and independent uh, review of this. Uh, Jack Ryan has been involved in cases in Minnesota before. And at least several of those cases, he's been quite critical of the Minneapolis Police Department and actions of the police officers. But in this case, he agreed with the conclusions that Keith and I and our staffs arrived at independently, that the law and the facts did not support a prosecution of Officer Hanneman in this case. All right, our next question is from uh, Steve Karnowski from the AP. Did Amir Locke have a carry permit as his family has said? Uh, that issue is, it wasn't relevant to our analysis. Um, his family has said that, but because it didn't really matter, he was in a, in a home, he was in lawful possession of the firearm. He was not a, a person who couldn't have a firearm. So, uh, you know, that issue, while I know it was raised in the press, ultimately doesn't impact uh, the decision in this case. Our next question is from Andy Mannix from the Star Tribune. Does the body footage for Hanneman support the claims that Locke was pointing at him? When will we see the rest of the footage? To answer the latter part first, the body-worn camera uh, video will all be up on the Bureau of Criminal Apprehensions website today, if it's not up already. Uh, the body-worn camera uh, footage for Hanneman and the other officers show the gun that Amir Locke was holding um, at the time he was shot. It shows that 
Amir Locke was holding it by the butt of the, the gun in a, in a shooting position, although his finger was not on the trigger. Um, that gun was pointed directly at Officer Hanneman. Uh, during the body-worn camera, it seemed to dip down a bit and then come back up. Um, and that's confirmed by both the officer statements and the body-worn camera, which you can see later today. If I may add, the term pointing might imply a level of intentionality that we don't know whether Amir Locke had or not. We don't know what was on his mind. It could have been an inadvertent moment. On it, 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 we don't know if he was pointing it, but the video does indicate it was pointed in the direction of Officer Hannah. Good clarification. Our next question is from John Collins with NPR. Why not let jurors decide whether the evidence shows that the officer's actions were, quote, reasonable? And as a prosecutor, you have an ethical responsibility to not bring charges when the law and the evidence show that you can't prevail. We have to, we have the burden, we have to prove the, prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And it is our conclusion that we cannot prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt that the officer's actions were unreasonable. This is an important justice matter because you don't want to put anybody on trial for a case simply to meet um, public demand. It has to be a it has to be a, a ethical consideration based on prosecutorial ethics, and that's what we're abiding by. I've received a question that says, what department was Jack Ryan with? Was he with MPD? I do not believe Jack Ryan was ever with MPD. Uh, I do not recall exactly which departments he may have been at. That, again, is on the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension website. Uh, his vitae is there. I just don't recall that. Our next question is from Scott at Minnesota News Network. Even though you acknowledge the law and facts don't support charges in this case, what is your message to Minneapolis community members, particularly those of color, who see this decision as another example of police getting away with murder? I say, first of all, we understand how you feel. Uh, it is, this is a heartbreaking situation. We have a situation here where a young man uh, is is dead. There's no evidence that he was ever a suspect or that uh, he ever intentionally tried to harm the officer. And yet we have uh, a very unsatisfactory situation here, but uh, we have to abide what the legal standards are. There's, the fact is that the struggle goes on. We, we can make reform in the area of criminal justice reform. We can make reform in the area of don't-knock warrants, police procedure, uh, we can continue. There, there's still a viable civil matter here. There are uh, a number of things community can and should do to carry forward. And so this is not the time for people to feel like there's no hope. There is. Uh, uh, people should carry forward and continue to try to make the system uh, one we can all be proud of. All right. The next 
question uh, is again from John Collins, as we haven't received any others from uh, different news outlets. Does statute 609.066 need to be revised? That's a very complex question. Um, we asked police officers if shots are fired to go towards the shots when the rest of us as civilians go away from it. Because we asked police officers to take steps to protect us, they have rights under statutes like 609066 to use deadly force when they are confronted in a situation where a reasonable police officer who is not part of that situation at the time believes that there's a plausible threat and that a use of deadly force is required. Uh, that's based not, on, not only in the Minnesota statute, but the federal constitution and a whole series of federal case laws. Um, what I think we can try to do that perhaps will accomplish some of the reforms that Keith and I are both talking about and want to occur is to make sure that officers are less often in situations in which they're confronted and they think they have to use deadly force and to make sure that officers are thoroughly and completely trained to use deadly force is only the last resort. I think we have work to do in both of those areas. Um, oh, let's see. Our, uh, we have one more question. It looks like from Lou, Lou Ragusa, CARE 11. Under the apparent circumstance of Amir Locke waking up with a gun and potentially believing this was a home invasion, what would it have taken for charges to be appropriate in this case? You know, I, I do appreciate Lou's question, and I understand why he's asking it. It simply is beyond the scope of our mission. It, it, it would require us to speculate, and uh, I don't think that that is the, the right thing to do at this time. Um, I think this is probably a good time to, to wrap up. Let me just say in conclusion, I agree. It looks like we've answered the questions. Um, I really support what Keith said in his opening. We've got lots of work to do in the criminal justice system to make it safer. Um, and this death is a tragedy and it was not necessary. But we are honor bound under our ethical rules only to charge cases in which there's sufficient Admissible evidence to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, and we believe it's there. To charge a case like this would simply be wrong. Uh, and I really appreciate the courage and uh, the commitment of the Attorney General and his staff and mine, uh, but just by the, the opinion of Captain Ryan. Um, this is not a fun part of our job. Uh, we try to make it as professional as we can but our hearts still go out to the family. And we need to make a situation where these kinds of situations don't exist. Yeah, thank you, Mike. And uh, let me thank again um, the, the family. Uh, meeting with uh, the family today was uh, something that is essential that to do. They, had, they have the right to transparency. They have the right to understand why. And I just want to say I can't think of a more uh, a more dignified family under the circumstances that they're in. And I just hope the community continues to rally around them uh, and continues to demand that we have a fairer, better system. So with that, I think that's probably it. Thank you. 
Okay, so that is from the press conference that took place today. Um, you you heard um, Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman, who's the prosecutor, and Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. Uh, I'd encourage people also to uh, read the article from NBC News. And there's a link in here because I printed up the um, press release they released today. It's four pages. Then there's a 44-page investigative report that was released on Wednesday. I haven't had a chance to read the 44-page report, but I pretty much read all of the uh, press release that was uh, released or the memo that was released. Uh, This one here, let's see. Okay, this is the statement. So in this article, if we look at this here, and that's more I'm going to get to because in the article from the Washington Post, it has statements from uh, the officers. But this is why the law has to change in Minnesota. Now, other states' laws may be a little different, but we're talking about Minnesota right now. The laws vary from state to state. The first thing we have to do is learn the law to understand what to change. Um, and, and this is one of the reasons why the George, now the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, um, if that had have passed, or because we know it was basically blocked by Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, because it passed the House of Representatives by a vote of 220 to 212. The only people that voted for the bill were, were Democrats. Okay, no Republicans voted for the bill. The one Republican who voted for the bill said he made a mistake and was going to change his vote. So go to congress.gov and look up the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of uh, 2021, the 117th Congress, and you can see who voted for the bill, who voted against the bill. One of the things the bill would have done is to lower the federal standard to prosecute, criminally prosecute officers at the federal level, lower it from willful intent down to negligence. Willful intent means that uh, you willfully intended to deprive someone of the civil rights. It goes to state of mind. It's very hard to prove. Negligence is much easier to prove. So uh, from my understanding, they're going to get part, try to uh, get parts of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed. You still need 60 votes in the Senate, which means you're going to need 10 Republicans because that doesn't you can't use the budget reconciliation process to get it passed like they did the American Rescue Plan, uh, which requires uh, 51 votes. OK, and then Vice President Kamala Harris will be the tiebreaker. But uh, breaking it up into individual bills and getting it passed that way, you can get some passed in this in, in this 117th Congress. Then after the 2022 midterm elections, Democrats have to increase their uh, margin in the Senate and maintain control of the Senate. And then you can change the filibuster rules. If you get 55 Democratic senators, then you can have 53 that vote to change the filibuster rules. And even if Manchin and Cinema defect and vote against it, it'll be 53-52 and you can change the filibuster rules. You can nullify Senator Joe Manchin and Senator uh, Kirsten Sinema's votes. But that requires understanding strategy and planning, not being reactionary. So if uh, so right here, 
if you want to read this, you click on statement. And that's, in, I think, the second paragraph. And it takes you to, takes you right here. Okay, takes you right here to uh, hennepinattorney.org. Uh, and this is the statement that was released today. I printed it out as four pages. So you can read this. It goes through and breaks all this down. And it, and it, and it deals with what Minnesota state law is. Uh, Minnesota statute section 609.66, uh, which is... Where is that here? Okay, that's page two. Okay, right here. Under Minnesota statute uh, section 609.66, deadly force may be used only if and only if uh, an objectively reasonable officer would believe based on the totality of the circumstances known to the officer at the end, at the time and without the benefit of hindsight that such force was necessary to protect the peace officer or another from death or great bodily harm under this provision of Minnesota law for a uh, uh, peace officer's use of deadly force to be authorized there must be at minimum a threat of death or great bodily harm, which one can be articulated with specificity, two is reasonably likely to occur absent action by the law enforcement officer, and three must be addressed through the use of deadly force without reasonable delay. The law does not allow for consideration of the victim's subjective intent the law does not allow for consideration of the victim's subjective intent in evaluating whether or not the use of deadly force is authorized the law requires us to evaluate the totality of the circumstances from which the perspective of a reasonable officer in a semi perspective of a reasonable officer in a similar situation so you can read the rest of this here also. All right. So this is why the law has to change, which means it's going to change, has to go through the state legislature in Minnesota to change. All right. Now I want to go to, uh, okay, the, you can read this article here from the Washington Post also. Police won't be charged in shooting of a mere lock during no-knock raid. Okay, this is from Wednesday, um, April 6th. And if you go down to the paragraph that starts with, um, okay, body, uh, okay, wrapped in this. Body camera video released by Minneapolis police in February 2022 shows a mere lock apparently waking up as SWAT officers burst into the apartment, his body wrapped in a comforter and a bright light in his face. As Amir Locke shifts his body to sit up, a gun is seen in his hand. 
Three gunshots are heard, all fired by Officer Mark Hanneman. Uh, before the video stops, according to prosecutor, prosecutors Locke was shot in the face, chest, and uh, uh, shoulder and suffered a graze to the wrist. He was later pronounced dead at the hospital. It was not clear from what it was not clear from that initial video if the gun was pointed at the officers or whether anyone ordered him to drop it before he was shot. The end lasted less than 10 seconds. A 44 page, this is what, what I wanted to go to this section here. This is on page one of this article because I printed it out from the Washington Post. A 44 page investigative report released by Minnesota State's Attorney General Keith Ellison and Hennepin County uh, Prosecutor Mike Freeman on Wednesday, April 6th, offered new details about the incident, including written statements from Officer Mark Hanneman and other officers at the scene that appeared to contradict the publicly released body camera footage of the fatal shooting. Sergeant John uh, Sysop, uh, a Minneapolis SWAT officer who was first to enter the apartment, claimed in a written statement to investigators that Locke was engaged in, quote, evasive movements and did not comply with verbal commands as the team executed the warrant. Well, it's presumed that Amir was asleep and waking up. So he's trying to assess what's going on. So I, I didn't exactly see what the officer saw, but to call that evasive movements, I don't think that was evasive movements. It's somebody that hears somebody coming in the apartment and they're trying to figure out what's going on. They have and Amir had a sheet over his head and he was asleep. And his mother said he was a deep sleeper. His mother said he was a deep sleeper. So I don't, think those are evasive movements. Now, the uh, Sergeant Sysath said he saw Locke raise the barrel of, the gun, of his gun toward uh, Hanneman and, quote, believed that Mr. Locke intended to use the firearm to harm Officer Hanneman or the SWAT team, end quote. Now, Sergeant Carlson, another SWAT officer, was providing cover at the scene said he told to quote, show his hands, but the man retreated under the blanket and began vigorously moving around. Okay. But still, if he was asleep, people just coming in yelling, screaming, things like this, and you have a sheet over your head. You don't know what's going on. You're, you're still trying to, you're still trying to figure out what was going on. And he had his finger on the barrel of the gun and not the trigger which, and when you go through firearms training, things like this, they teach you, you only put your finger on the trigger when you're getting ready to shoot. So he's still trying to assess what's going on. Okay, this picture here, this still photo here, his finger is on the barrel of the gun, not the trigger. So he's still trying to uh, assess what is going, what, what's going on. All right, now, then they, uh, okay, let's go back to Washington Post. Sergeant Troy Carlson, another, uh, okay, another SWAT officer, 
vigorously moving around. Carlson initially thought there was a physical struggle before shots were fired. No, there was not a physical struggle. Uh, according to the report, but said the body camera uh, footage made public in, in the case had, quote, altered his perception of how the events occurred and thought the sounds he heard were the overall commotion at the scene. In his public, in his first public statement about the shooting, Officer Mark Hanneman said that Locke fell onto the floor uh, when another officer kicked the couch where the man was sleeping. In a written statement, Officer Mark Hanneman said he saw, quote, the end of the blanket rise with Amir Locke crouching beneath it and holding a gun, quote, unquote, quote, unquote, pointed at me, pointed at me. In this moment, I feared for my life. In the lives of my teammates, I was convinced that the individual was going to fire their handgun and I would suffer great bodily harm or death, Officer Mark Hanneman told investigators in a statement according to the 44-page investigative report. Quote, I, I felt in this uh, moment that if I did not use deadly force myself, I would be likely killed. There was no opportunity for me to reposition myself or retreat. There was no way for me to de-escalate the situation. The threat to my life and the lives of my teammates was imminent and terrifying. Okay. Now, they were executing a warrant for a nearby, I think it was St. Paul, Minnesota, a, a nearby police department. The nearby police department did not request a no-knock warrant also. That's the other thing. If if they if if it if they hadn't done a no-knock warrant and just a regular warrant where they not would they knock and announce themselves, a mere lock would probably still be alive. Now Officer Hanneman's statements contradict the scene recorded in the body camera footage made public by police in February of 2022, but um, Hennepin County Attorney Mike Ellison and, uh, I mean, Keith Ellison, uh, Minnesota State's Attorney General Keith Ellison and Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman said additional footage from the body cameras worn by Hanneman and the other officers at the scene would be made public soon, showing different perspectives. A spokeswoman for the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, which investigates officer-involved shootings in the state and provided its findings to prosecutors in the Locke case, said the agency planned to uh, release the entire case file in the Amir Locke shooting including the additional body camera body camera video but it was not clear when the information would be made public all right so read the rest of this here because this is four pages well it's three it is actually three pages okay okay so read the rest of that there they talk about the news conference all right so they discussed this on roller martin unfiltered today um, and I want to go to this here in just a second here. They discussed this on, uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered. 
All right. So we'll go to that in just a second because he had two attorneys on uh, and one's a former prosecutor and one's a defense attorney. All right. Uh, if you'd like this type of information, um, if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, or at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Okay. Um, we have the information right on the homepage of our website. This is our official cash app account, dollar sign, the AHN show. So, so let's keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills. Uh, this is our official cash app account, dollar sign, the AHN show. And when you go to it, it says Michael and shows my picture here. These other ones here are fake African History Network cash app accounts. That's not us. So if you sent money to them, go through the app and let um, cash app know you sent it to the wrong uh, account. Uh, we have the link here. Uh, you can click there for cash app. And then we also have the yellow donate button for PayPal. Uh, we're celebrating our 12th year anniversary of me broadcasting the African History Network show. I started March 10th. 2010 on the Harambe radio network. Okay. And then, um, now I'm on the, uh, 9, 10 AM superstation WFDF. Be sure to register for the online classes. I teach on Saturdays and Sundays on Saturdays. It is ancient Kemet, the Moors in my offer, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Uh, we deal with thousands of years of history, what leads to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. So, uh, actually, most of the content now is, is on demand. So as soon as you register for it, you can start watching uh, the content. Okay. As soon as you register for it, you can start watching uh, the class. We have nine weeks of classes already recorded. And then you can join us in class uh, this uh, this Saturday. Okay. 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then we have a bundle pack where you can uh, register for both classes. Uh, the classes are $60, regularly $130. Uh, we deal with thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We deal with the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. On Sundays, I teach from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of Black Power, 1865 to 1968. And um, I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips, all of that. That class is on sale, $60, regularly $130 also. Even after the, you still have full access to the class. So a year from now, you can go back and watch the entire course. And we have a bundle pack where you can get both classes for a hundred dollars. That's a $260 value. If you've taken any of my online classes in the past, email me at AHN show at African history network.com. AHN show at African history network.com for a 50% discount. All right. Okay. So I want to go to, uh, this clip here, this is from uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered today. And he spoke He, he spoke with uh, one of uh, Mayor Locke's, uh, one of his family's attorney. Then after that, he went to his panel. On his panel was A. Scott Bolden, who's an attorney and a former prosecutor. And then uh, also uh, a defense attorney, Monique Presley, who's also a law professor at uh, Howard University. Okay, I think she teaches at Howard. I know Monique. Um, 
and I'm on Roller Martin Unfiltered on Fridays. I'm a panelist on Fridays. Okay, let me cue this up. Stand by just a second here. Let's go to this. Scott Bolton is the former chair, National Bar Association Political Action Committee's attorney here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Tarva, excuse me, Tanya Washington Hicks, professor uh, Georgia State University College of Law. Monique Presley, a legal analyst and crisis manager. Glad to have all three of you here. Um, clearly, Scott, um, Attorney General Keith Ellison um, looked through as the law as much as he could. Uh, to to find something here, they said they simply could not figure out what to charge these cops with. But it, it says a hell of a whole lot that when these police are using these no knock warrants, busting into apartments, shoot and kill this this young man who's sleeping on the couch, who's lawfully possessing a gun. Basically, what this is saying to black people. Yo, you ain't got no Second Amendment rights. Roland, <laughs> I got to tell you, I got a lot of trust in Keith Ellison, one. Two, as a former prosecutor, I've reviewed these types of cases. And I got to tell you, under Minnesota law, the law allows the police officers, whether it's a no-knock warrant or not, if they didn't have a no-knock warrant and went in, they went in, he had a gun. He was under the covers. They may have just woken him up. He may not have known what he was what he was dealing with. He could legally possess that gun. But in that circumstance, once he they see the gun, once they he pulls it out, whether once he points it at the ground, whether he points it at them, the police, in their judgment, have the right to fire. This is a clean one. It's unfortunate, but it but, is, but, but, it is but, a tragedy. But Scott, but this is a clean shoot right here. But Scott, and here's, hold on, Scott. Scott, hold on. I, I can Scott, Scott hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. But he, All right, let me pause it. I want to go to the next clip here, and hold on. Let me see something here. Okay, let me go to the next clip here, and let me advance this up. Okay. They show the video clip. Let's go past that. All right, hold on. Um, you see the video there. They come in. Dude's under the covers. Yeah. All of a sudden, I see flash. No, 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 hold up. I see flashlights, and it's not even. It's not even two seconds. But it's like, boom! Covers come up. Pop out. Yeah, but, but look, the covers came up, right? They see the gun, whether it's pointed at them or not, they see it. And now remember what the police are there for. It's a high-intensity warrant for murder, right? And so, and the report also says that the people they're looking for uh, are armed and dangerous. So when they go into that apartment, they're looking for people, they're looking for guns, and it is the most dangerous high alert they're at when they go in. Now, when they see that gun, they see an individual. They don't know who he is, but they see the gun wherever it's being pointed. I doubt Amir even knew what was going on because he was sleeping, and it's really tragic. But once they see the gun, right, and they tell him to drop it, they don't give him enough time to drop it, whether he lawfully owns it or not, and they fire. Okay, can you can you file criminal charges against the police in that circumstance, in that tragedy? No, you cannot, at least not under Minnesota law. 
the thing that's he, that's the legal deal. That's the legal deal, and it's not going to change. The thing the, the thing here the thing here, uh, uh, Monique, is they were executing a no doc warrant, and the other police department didn't want that. They insisted on this. Had they followed the St. Paul Police Department, there would not have been a no-knock warrant. But they pursued it themselves to say, oh, we'll help y'all and we're going to do it with a no-knock warrant. Okay. I mean, this is... That, so, that so, so we're left with... Scott just said. Go ahead. It doesn't negate anything that Scott just said. I, I can't hear I you. I couldn't hear you. I yeah. can't hear you. Say one more. Oh, one. I don't know. Okay. Now, there you go. Now go ahead. Can you hear me now? Yes. yes. Oh, great. I said, it doesn't negate anything that Scott just said. I, I, I agree with you. And it is unfortunate. It's tragic. It's, it's terrible. Um, but what you said when you were speaking to uh, the one family attorney, to me, is... It's I don't I don't know how else to say it except for one thing does not lead to another. You said I mean a man is dead. Well, actually, I'm sorry, your phone is breaking. And certainly, those of us who are here on your panel, those of us who are here on your panel, know just because someone is dead doesn't mean that a crime has been committed. That it has to be run through the law. There has to be a determination made about what the charges are. Um, and, and I, I agree with Scott in this analysis and, you know, I have great respect to the lawyers who were involved. I'm sure that they will bring a wrongful death case. I'm sure that it will be successful. They've already cured the no knock warrant issue that should have happened before. But again, that's not criminal. Well, but, 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 but Tanya, when we, when money says one thing doesn't lead to another, actually it does. And this is precisely why. You cannot have no knock warrants. This is precisely why if you're trying to apprehend somebody, it can't be this. You don't know who's on the other side of that door. I totally get homicide investigation. I totally get all of that. But the reality is there's a dead person who was innocent, who was not involved in any of this on the other side of that door. And if you do not have this no knock warrant, they're not going into the apartment. The man is not sleeping and he's not shot and killed under a blanket. Well, I'm glad the policy finally changed. Unfortunately, it changed too late for Mr. Locke. Um, No-knock warrants were created to deal with uh, drug enforcement, to ensure that people didn't destroy the drugs that the police were trying to um, capture. But they're being used in too many instances in circumstances that result in dead black people. And I'm sure it rings hollow to the family to hear that this is tragic and unfortunate. That doesn't bring her child back. And I think the question we need to ask is that if people can be held harmless under the current law, what do we need to change the law to be so that these kinds of actions are considered criminal and treated as such? This, right. this is where there has to be a pursuit to change policies, procedures, and the law, Scott, 
Monique and Tanya, because I keep saying this. Death is death. Ain't no coming back from it. And the reality is, if you did not have a no-knock warrant, if you had uh, a, a, a different situation here, this young man is not dead. And so, I'm not done. I'm not done. We can talk about, well, police and in terms of all the other things here. But again, we want the bad guys captured. Not somebody who's innocent, who ends up dead, caught in the crossfire of this. And that's why when you had uh, 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 Nakima Levy-Armstrong, who confronted the police chief and the mayor at the news conference and said, we told y'all to ban these long ago. We told you to ban these no-knock warrants uh, before. Now you're going to do it after the fact and another black man is dead. But, but, but what does that have to do why, with why is a mere right okay all right you can watch the rest of that there um so you have to change the, the, the laws have to be changed first of all you have to learn the law first of all you have to learn the law so you know what to change in the law all right um so check that out today Here, here's the link um follow roland martin on youtube and facebook that is the show from april 6th uh, dealing with the mirror lock, no charges filed. Also download the Black Star Media app. And uh, you can watch Roland Martin and Filter there and the other shows on the Black Star uh, Media Network. And, and, and definitely watch the show on Fridays because I'm a panelist on Roland Martin and Filtered on Fridays. So you definitely want to watch on Fridays. All right. Okay. Uh, African-American business owners, post the name of your business here on the thread of the broadcast. Email us at AHN show at African history network.com AHN show at African history network.com. We'll let you know how you can um, uh, advertise with the African history network. Our current promotion is buy one month, get two months free. And we have the information on our website. Also African history network.com, but email us at AHN show at African history network.com. Okay. So if you're an African American business owner, you can have a, uh, e-commerce store you have a brick and mortar store uh you may sell clothing uh you may sell uh skin products hair products uh books uh you may be a fitness trainer you may sell jewelry uh all different types of, of businesses email us at ahn show at africanhistorynetwork.com we we'll take your 30 second to 60 second commercial and we'll put into the rebroadcast of these shows uh, and also on 10 different audio podcast platforms that our show is on also. Uh, if you don't have a commercial, we can create one for you. No additional charge. Email us at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com. All right. So let's see here. I think I got, let me check here. Okay. So I think I got to all of the clips. Okay, we got that. Now, last thing I was going to talk about um, yesterday when we dealt with uh, Jessica Tanji Brown Jackson's nomination uh, advancing, and uh, it, it was a procedural vote, fifty-three forty-seven, after it was a deadlock in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, so, and the eleven eleven deadlock in the Senate Judiciary Committee. 
uh, Joanne Reed on uh, the readout on MSNBC interviewed Vice President Kamala Harris a few days ago. And I, I didn't get a chance to get to this uh, clip yesterday or the day before. This is from April 1st. Okay, this was from uh, Friday, April 1st. Yeah, so I didn't get a chance to get to it on our Sunday show. Our Sunday show was jam-packed because we dealt with the Will Packer interview, uh, uh, the, the interview he did on Good Morning America, Will Packer, uh, dealing with uh, what, what went on behind the scenes when, uh, hold on, what went on behind the scenes uh, when, um uh, Will Smith uh, slapped Chris Rock in, in, after, in the aftermath. Okay, so we didn't get, didn't I get a chance to get to that? So stand by. Let me cue this up. So we have that show rebroadcasting also. We're back with more of my interview with Vice President Kamala Harris today in Greenville, Mississippi. You know, we started off talking about Ukraine, and I wonder if you're concerned, having, as you said, been in these European capitals, uh, promoting the idea, as President Biden says, that America is back, that we are uh, back, you know, in, in, in line with the West and promoting the ideas of democracy, that it, it may be difficult for our allies to trust that our democracy will hold if a former president can participate in and foment an attempted coup in this country um, and can walk away from it. Um, and as this in, in, in this in this country right now, Republicans all across the country are severely restricting the right to vote, mm -hmm. um, severely undermining access to the ballot. Doesn't that undermine the case that you need to make and that the president needs to make about democracy, about American democracy? Well, it's not new that, that there will be attacks on our, our democratic systems from within. That's not new. Um, the, the, the point has to be, what are we doing to stand up against that, right? And so we have been attempting, for example, in the in Congress to get the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act passed, the Freedom to Vote Act passed. We need to get those passed because after 2013 in Shelby v. Holder, when the Voting Rights Act was gutted essentially we need to put back in place those protections we're going to continue to work on what we need to do to fight back against what's happening in those states including supporting all of the folks at the local level who in many other states are actually strengthening the right to vote essentially what's at issue and i think it's plain as day to see is that people again in record numbers voted in 2020 and that scared some folks so now they are in the process of trying to put in place laws around in various states in our country to make it more difficult to vote with the expectation and intention that if you make it more difficult to vote, certain people won't vote. I think that folks know when they stood in those lines in 2020 for hours, when that single mother or father put those kids in the back seat and then drove to drop that ballot off in the drop box, they went and voted because they said, I want certain things. I want an extension of the child tax credit, and they got it. They said, I want to see money go to HBCUs, and they got it. They said, I want to see that we're going to have a real commitment to having broadband and high-speed Internet for all communities, including rural communities, that it's going to be affordable, including in ur urban communities. They got that. 
They said they want to have an administration that fights for affordable child care so that nobody should pay more than 7% of their income in child care. We're fighting for that. I think the people in 2020 made an order. They put in their order when they voted and said this is the, these are the things they want. And they got those things. And that in the next election, they're going to know that when they vote, that vote matters. And it produces results based on what they dictate. Well, one of the things that we're seeing is um, NBC News polling and others showing a disconnect um, between the performance of the economy and, as you said, mm -hmm. you know, the, the actual substance of what has been passed mm -hmm. and what American voters have received um, and people's contentment, um, including with the administration. There is an enthusiasm gap that's north of 10, 12 percent. Republicans are more enthusiastic than Democrats. And when you dig down into those numbers, it's because many in the Democratic base don't feel that they've gotten what they voted for, what they were promised by the Biden-Harris um, campaign, um, now that it is the Biden-Harris administration. One of the reasons for that is that Senator Joe Manchin, Senator Kirsten Sinema have stood in the way of extending the child tax credit, have stood in the way of increasing the minimum wage, have stood in the way of many of the, you know, the Build Back Better um, uh, bill, have stood in the way of passing voting rights. Are Senators Manchin and Sinema, in the view of the White House, are they allies of this administration or are they opponents? Not one Republican voted for the American Rescue Plan. Which brought $1,400 checks to people when they needed it most, when we had millions of people out of work through no fault of their own. Not one voted when we were extending the child tax credit. And working parents know what that meant and what it means in terms of helping them get through the days in the month and satisfy their basic responsibilities to parent their children. When we look at what we achieved in terms of putting in place a system around getting vaccines for people. So now over 200, I think it's in 15 million people have been vaccinated in our country. And as a result, we've been able to reopen our schools. 99% of them are reopened. Businesses are reopening. These are the achievements that were made possible in spite of the fact that not one Republican in so many of these policies voted. So I'm not going to get caught up in kind of an internal firing squad mm -hmm. when you got to look at the fact that if we're talking about party politics, uh, you, you've got a system where you also have an entire group of people who I believe have diverse interests and needs, but are for some reason falling in line behind a, a party instead of behind a policy that actually is in the best interest of their constituents. Let's do a quick lightning round. Um, okay. Let's talk about Jenny Thomas, um, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. I don't do lightning rounds. I'm just telling you. But, <laughs> but because there's, it's not that simple it's for me ever. Simple. So before you ask any question, know that. Absolutely. And I don't mind that at okay, all. Okay. I don't mind that at all. I'm looking at the, the clock, for the person who is minding the clock okay. behind you, but I'm talking okay. with that. Do you believe that the revelations about Jenny Thomas um, have revealed that the ethics rules for Supreme Court justices need to be strengthened. Should Clarence Thomas recuse himself from any cases related to January 6th or future elections? I, I definitely think that the court needs to take a critical look at its rules around ethics. And that relates to a series of issues that have come up over the years. Yeah. We all sat and watched the Ketanji Brown-Jackson uh, hearings uh, in which she 
very calmly um, sat through what I think a lot of, particularly black women, let's just be honest, felt was brazen disrespect from senators like Lindsey Graham, senators like Tom Cotton, senators like Josh Hawley. Mm -hmm. What did you think when you watched that hearing? I will tell you, Joy, I experienced great joy when I watched this brilliant, phenomenal black woman, jurist, be so smart and just cut through the political gamesmanship that they were attempting to incite. And she just was composed. And as far as I'm concerned, was taking a whole lot of people to school. And I watched that with incredible joy because it was just brilliance being displayed for the entire country to see. And I cannot wait to see, I, it, that will only be matched by the joy that I experience when I see her take the oath to be the next justice on the United States Supreme Court. Vice President Harris, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Joyce. Good to be you. with you. Great thank you. you. Thank you. All right. So that was from uh, April 1st. Hold on. Let me close this up. All right. So that was from April 1st, uh, 2022. You can check that out at uh, msnbc.com. And let me see something here. I, I showed you the, see, in, in politics, you don't run on what you didn't get accomplished. You run on what you actually got accomplished. Run on what you got passed. Run on policies you put in place. That's how you win. You don't, you don't run on what you didn't get accomplished because Republicans got a whole lot less accomplished than Democrats did. And overwhelmingly, the bills that Republican the, the bills that Democrats got passed, overwhelmingly Republicans kept voting against. So and you have to show what the alternative is if re Republicans take back control of the House and the Senate. You have to show what the alternative is. They're not advocating for policies that are beneficial to African Americans in general. Republicans, they're not in, in, in the policies that just like the American Rescue Plan. I just showed you the fact sheet on the American Rescue Plan. No Republicans in the House or the Senate voted for the American Rescue Plan, even though it was going to benefit many of the uh, many Republicans who voted for them in the first place. OK, there's a uh, OK, I want to go to. Where is. Okay, there's a um, the fact sheet on uh, it is okay. Where's that fact sheet on? Excuse, uh, hold on.
Uh, I wanted to pull up the, yeah, uh, this one right here. Why this is why this doesn't get talked about more, I don't even understand. Even from the Biden Harris administration, they should they should talk about this more right here. December 17, 2021, the Biden Harris administration's historic investment and support for historically black colleges and universities. HBCUs got five point eight billion dollars. In, in, in funding in 2021. That's a record amount of aid, a record amount of funding uh, in one year from an administration. They got 5.8 billion, okay? Uh, they got 3.7 billion from the American Rescue Plan, okay? They got uh, $1.6 billion in debt relief from the Department of Education. And they got uh, five hundred million dollars in grant funding. They got they got five point eight billion in one year. They've never gotten that type of money before in one year. And then the uh, the the new uh, the the new um, budget uh, that Biden unveiled six point nine. It's about six point eight six point nine trillion dollar budget that gives an increase in funding for the federal government. I think it's like it increases like 200 million from what they normally get. I have to look at the budget again. But most people don't know this. This is what they got in 2021. Okay, this is at whitehouse.gov. This is why you have to do research. This is why when trolls come on here, I have to school them, then block them because they're ignorant. They don't do research. They just repeat nonsense. They just repeat nonsense that they get from these simple Simon ass people on social media because they don't read. And then the one I showed you here, the America, the, the fact sheet on the American Rescue Plan, is that WhiteHouse.gov research this. No Republicans in the House or the Senate voted for the American Rescue Plan, and you you gonna let you gonna let them take back control of the House and the Senate, and they consistently vote against bills that are beneficial to African Americans. One, one of the problems in how we frame the conversation is we frame the conversation thinking that issues pertaining to African-Americans are either dealing with criminal justice or voting, which is false. Environmental issues deal with African-Americans. When you deal with keeping school open, keeping schools open, that deals with us. When you deal with infrastructure, that deals with us. Okay. When you talk about uh, infant mortality, like the like the summit that Vice President Kamala Harris had at the White House dealing with infant mortality, that deals with us. When you deal with the Crown Act, the Crown Act, and then you had one idiot I had to block who doesn't know what he's talking about. The Emmett Till anti-lynching bill passed after uh, uh, Amir Locke was killed. They're just stupid. I just had to ban some dumbass has absolutely no, no clue what they're talking about, but that doesn't even qualify under the anti-lynching bill because you're dealing with law enforcement, which is why you need the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed. If you got to break it up in five, six, seven bills, do that. Because when you can lower the federal standard from willful intent down to negligence, then you can criminally prosecute more police officers at the federal level, criminal prosecution. People got caught up over willful and uh, people got caught up over qualified immunity. People weren't talking about qualified immunity five, six, seven years ago. Qualified immunity 
is a civil lawsuit. You don't, this is, this is the point that James Clyburn made in, in May of 2021. Clyburn said, if you can't come to an agreement over when, when Senator Cory Booker represented Karen Bass and Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, when they were negotiating the George Floyd Justice Policing Act in the Senate after they had already passed the House of Representatives by a vote of 220 to 212 and no Republicans voted for the bill. Only people that voted for the bill were Democrats. In May 2021, Clyburn said when, when, when it came out that the sticking point was over qualified immunity, Clyburn correctly stated, he said, if you can't come to an agreement over qualified immunity, he said, take qualified immunity out of the bill, get the rest of the bill passed, come back and get qualified immunity later. I said, he's absolutely correct. A lot of woke ass activists jumped on Clyburn, said he didn't know what he was talking about. Clyburn said, you don't sacrifice a good bill because you can't get a perfect bill. So what happened? Then in September, what happened? September of uh, 2021, then the talks totally broke down. You had Senator Tim Scott that went out and lied and said that, um, he said that, uh, uh, he said that the George Floyd Justice and Police and that defunded the police. No, it didn't. The bill didn't defund the police. The bill actually funds the police. This is what people don't even understand because they don't read. I, I, I broke this down here on this show. And hold on, let me show this because I got to get out of here. But this is what people don't understand. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act spends millions more on policing. It does not defund the police. People are just walking around just repeating nonsense and don't read. It spends the money in a responsible way. That's the difference. Okay, so this article here from Washington Post. I talked about this when it came out. May 9th, 2021, Representative Clyburn says qualified immunity doesn't have to be part of the policing reform bill. It does not, okay? the If you take quali qualified immunity is a civil lawsuit. It's not criminal prosecution. The most important thing in the bill was lowering the federal standard from willful intent down to uh, negligence so that you can criminally prosecute more police officers at the federal level. Criminal prosecution is a bigger deterrent than a civil lawsuit. Okay, number one, the police union is going to help them raise money to pay the civil lawsuit. If 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 they lose that civil lawsuit, if the officer loses it, the police union is going to help them raise money. Two, insurance companies are going are, insurance companies are going to start selling police liability misconduct insurance, just like doctors have to carry malpractice insurance. Insurance companies are going to start selling police misconduct insurance. If you don't think they will, that means you don't understand capitalism. There are 800,000 law enforcement officers approximately in this country. You think insurance companies are going to pass up being able to sell police misconduct liability insurance to 800,000 officers and they have to pay premiums each month? No. 
So if qualified immunity gets repealed, they're going to start selling police misconduct uh, insurance. And this is what some people have been advocating. Police officers need to carry that. But that you still ain't going to prison. You start locking them up in prison and they become felons. Okay? Can never be a police officer again. Certain jobs they can't have. They can't own firearms. Can't, can't own firearms. That's a bigger deterrent. So a lot of a lot of woke activists jumped on Clyburn. He was absolutely correct because September 2021, the talks broke off, and now is April, and the bill still hasn't passed. He was correct. He said, take that, take qualified immunity out, come back and get it later. You don't have to get it right now. There's a um where is it? Uh, there's another one. I had another article here that dealt with uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act as well. So I read one article from the Griot after, I think, after the Emmett Till anti lynching bill passed. And they said that uh, they're going to get they're going to look at getting these bills passed individually what what was in the uh george floyd justice and policing act um okay getting that passed individually but this one right here judiciary.justice.gov here's a fact sheet on what's in the george floyd justice and policing act okay work to end racial and religious profiling Save lives by banning chokeholds, no-knock warrants. Limit military equipment on American streets uh, um, and require and requires body cameras because all uh, police departments don't have body cameras. And then in addition to the body cameras, you also need the, the storage devices, the, the hard drives to store the video. Okay, that's expensive also. Hold police accountable. Now, this right here makes it easier. Let's zoom in on this for people with bad ass like me. Makes it easier to prosecute offending officers by amending the uh, federal criminal statute to prosecute police misconduct mens rea requirement in 18 U.S.C. Section 242 will be amended from willfulness, which means willful intent down to down to a recklessness standard. Okay. Because because proven willful intent is a very high bar to prove and the burden of proof is on the prosecution. The defense don't have to prove anything. The burden of proof is on the prosecution. Okay. Enables individuals to recover damages in civil court. That's qualified immunity. Civil court. When law enforcement officers violate their constitutional rights, um, violate their constitutional rights by eliminating qualified immunity for law enforcement. That's, that's a civil lawsuit, not criminal. This one, okay, so read this here. Then also you can read um, this one here from NBC News. 
Here's what's in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Here's, here's, here's what the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act would do. Read that article also. Here's what the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act would do. Now, there was a... Okay, I want the quote from Cory Booker. Yeah, okay, if we look at this for the sake of time, because I've got a few articles on this, but just for the sake of time. Let's look at this one right here, because I want to go to this Cory Booker quote, because he helped write the bill. And I find it interesting when people say these things, and it tells me what they haven't read. If we look at this article here, this is from September 28th, 2021. So this is right after the talks uh, fell apart. Okay. Uh, Washington Post has an article in this also, theweek.com. I talked about this when this came out. And we talked about it on Roller Martin and Filter, but I talked about it here on this show when it came out. Uh, largest U.S. police group. Let's see. This one right here from theweek.com. Let's look at this one, and I want the heal.com also. And then I've got the go. Okay, September 28, 2021. This is right after the talks broke down between the Democrats and Republicans in the Senate. Well, Senator Tim Scott was the Republican negotiating. Okay, he was negotiating in bad faith. Largest U.S. police group appears to counter Senator Tim Scott's argument that Democrats sought to defund police in form negotiations. This is from theweek.com, September 28, 2021. Uh, Senator Tim Scott has suggested that his police, his police reform talks with Senator Coy Booker and Representative Karen Bass fell apart because Democrats sought to defund the police by making department by making departments ineligible for funding if they fail to meet certain criteria, but a pair of prominent police organizations, the Internal Association of Police Chiefs or Chiefs of Police, and the Fraternal Order of Police, the FOP Fraternal Order of Police, appear to push back against Senator Tim Scott's argument in a statement on Tuesday, though the senator was not mentioned by name. They said, despite some media reports, at no point did any legislative draft propose defunding the police, the statement uh, the statement reads. Okay, despite some media reports, at no point did any legislative draft propose defunding the police. They're talking about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. In fact, the legislation specifically provided additional funding provided additional for, to assist law enforcement agencies in training, agency accrediting, and data collective and data data collection initiatives. This is what the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act did. Just some of the things it did. Now, those provisions would have helped strengthen law enforcement, improve community police engagement, without compromising management and officers' rights, authorities, and legal protections, 
the statement continues. Read the rest of this article here, okay? From theweek.com. Now, you got that, and then this one right here, I want to go to this one from The Hill. This is from September 28th, 2021 also. Okay, if we look at this one, I want to go, I want to look at the comments from Senator Tim Scott, who helped write the bill. He knows more about this than most people, than most of the active people talking about it on social media and things like this. Senator, Senator Cory Booker, I should say, Senator Cory Booker. Senator, uh, meanwhile, Senator Cory Booker said the reform would have allocated millions of dollars more to police. Now, Senator Tim Scott went on Face the Nation that's lying. He said, we said simply this, I'm not going to participate in reducing funding to police after we saw major city and major city, major city after major city defund the police, which major city after major city defunded the police, Senator Tim Scott. Okay, this is BS. Meanwhile, Senator Cory Booker said the reform, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, would have allocated millions of dollars more to police. Now, allocating millions of dollars more to police, does that sound like defunding the police or funding the police? Senator Cory Booker helped write the bill. The reform would have allocated millions of dollars more to police. Does that sound like defunding the police or funding the police? Senator Cory Booker on CNN State of the Union on Sunday said, we want to help officers with mental health issues. We want to collect more data. So we should give more resources. Does that sound like defunding the police or does that sound like funding the police? But you're doing it in a responsible way. People haven't read what's in the bill and what the bill does. Read the rest of this. This is why people have to do more reading and less talking. All right. You can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the EHN show, paypal.me forward slash the EHN show. We're celebrating our uh, 12th year anniversary of me broadcasting the African History Network show. Uh, first broadcasted March 10th, 2010. We have the information at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com as well. Uh, it's right here. Okay, this is our official cash app account, dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. When you go to it, it says Michael and shows my picture there. These other ones here are fake African History Network cash app accounts. We have the link right here on the website uh, as well. Okay, and you can register for the online classes, online history classes I teach on um, Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, Saturdays, it is uh, uh, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Uh, and basically, we, we have the classes on demand. Uh, we have nine weeks of classes on demand. And so you can register at a discount. Uh, 
discounted registration cost. It's $60, regularly $130. As soon as you register, just click register here. As soon as you register, you can start watching the content. You can join us in class this Saturday. I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips. And we deal with thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. Okay. And then on Sunday, it is uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. As soon as you register, we have about nine weeks of classes archived that you can watch. And once you register for the class, you, you have full access. So a year from now, two years from now, you can still uh, watch the uh, full class. Okay. You still have access. You can watch the full class. Taking any of my online courses in the past, email me at AHN show at African history network.com. And um, you can register for, uh, um, we have a, you'll get 50% off um, the registration calls. Okay. For being a returning student. And we also have a bundle pack here. You can register for both classes for $100. That's a $260 value. All right, look, we have to get out of here. Remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world, because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry. It's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre. I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me and she's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. Jeanette Davis is a well-established author with six published books. Black Survival in White America from Past History to the Next Century was published in 1995 and it delves into the history of African Americans before slavery up to contemporary times. The Great Divide Between Blacks and Whites was released in 2008 and her autobiography, Black Just Like My Mama, was published in 2010. Soulful Journey, The Business of Beings, was released in December 2021 and her two latest books, Echoes from the Heart, Love Throws Poetry, and Master Being Human were both published in January of 2022. Jeanette Davis' writings delve deeply into the psyche of black people from ancient to contemporary times. She cuts no corners and leaves no stones unturned in relating truth, letting the chips fall where they may on both African and European doorsteps. Order Jeanette Davis's books today at Amazon.com. Search for Jeanette Davis and get to know her work today. iRedify is a black-owned digital platform that showcases black and brown cultures and people. The books on the platform are written by African-American authors, Afro-Caribbean authors, African authors, and so much more. Kids 14 and under can read eBooks 
listen to audiobooks, and complete learning activities. Kids can even write in the books digitally. Get unlimited access to everything on the platform for only $8.99 a month at iredify.com. Sign up for your membership today. Abundant Capital Group is a real estate investment company with over 20 years of experience in real estate. They specialize in two areas of real estate. One, they solve real estate problems with creative financing solutions that give the seller the most money for their property. And two, they show individuals how to get a higher rate of return on their investment capital with real estate note investing. If you are looking to sell or need to sell your property, here is what they provide. Market value offer, even if you have little or no equity, they typically pay all closing costs, which can be thousands of dollars. They close on a date of the seller's choosing, and the seller does not have to be out of the house at the time of closing. They take the property in an as-is condition, and the seller is not required to make any repairs. Give them a call or email them today for a free consultation and see how they can help you with your real estate needs. Call them at 973-475-8488. That's 973-475-8488. Visit their website, AbundantCapitalGroup.com. That's AbundantCapitalGroup.com. And email them at ACG at AbundantCapitalGroup.com. Follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Abundant Capital Group. What does self-care mean to you? To us, it's an opportunity to reconnect with nature. A chance to create something remarkable. At Sage and Elm Apothecary, our handcrafted skin care and household products immerse you in Earth's sweetest nectar, connecting you to nature in a way you never imagined. See for yourself and visit us at sageandelmapothecary.com. <laughs> 